0: Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully.
1: Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder we could say to those who come after us We thought carefully. We made a considered decision. This is reflective of the values and the views of our contemporaries.
2: Meddle with it at your peril. That was Lawrence Goldman talking about the creation of monuments.
0: listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
2: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with Lawrence Goldman, who's Professor of History at the Institute of Historical Research and a Senior Research Fellow of St Peter's College, Oxford. He is one of the co-editors of a new book called Dethroning Historical Reputations, which tackles some of the thorny issues around memorials to and benefactions from historical figures who may now be considered controversial. The most famous example of this is the statue of Cecil Rhodes at Oriel College, Oxford, which was the subject of the Rhodes Must Fall campaign but there have been many other instances affecting universities, museums and other organisations around Britain and the world. I met up with Lawrence in London recently to explore some of these complex issues. Firstly, Lawrence, this book was inspired by the Rose Must Fall campaign. Yes, that's right. Both the UK and South Africa. So, very direct question, first of all. As a historian, do you think Rhodes should have fallen in either of these cases, should they have taken these statues down?
1: Well, I think it depends from what perspective you answer that question. I mean, if I were a private citizen, I might uh, answer it differently from my capacity as somebody who's taught in British universities and indeed in Oxford for many years. Um, I think speaking as a historian, what worries me in a case like this is the destruction of very important evidence from the past we wouldn't go into an archive and rip up uh, the letters uh, of a leading uh, historical figure and I think one has to be very careful that one doesn't destroy the built fabric and do a similar kind of violence uh, so if you ask me as a historian Rhodes's statue is part of the historic fabric it, it, it's a piece of historical evidence and I think it has to
2: stay so if we Don't agree with taking down a statue like this. What would you see as the other options for dealing with this kind of controversy?
1: Well, I think if historic statues, commemorations, monuments are to stay and not give offence, then they need contextualisation. And one of the obvious ways of dealing with a problem like this is to ensure that close by the offending monument or statue. Uh, There is a plaque, there is information. There are ways in which people approaching the statue of Cecil Rhodes, on the facade of Oriel College in Oxford uh, can know what it is they're, they're actually looking at. Uh, so I think that contextualisation, the provision of information so that people can understand, as it were, what this person did, what the reasons for the commemoration are, but also what the demerits of the person might appear to be when we now look at the statue and we now look at the history. It's that balance that one should be looking for.
2: I come from Bristol, and in Bristol we had a similar, though slightly different, situation around the slave owner Colston, who many things in Bristol are named after him. There's Colston Hall and Music Venue, there are schools and roads... And there, there was quite a big campaign to take his name off things, which isn't quite the same as statues. And I wonder, do you have a similar approach to the idea of changing names, away from names we find distasteful nowadays? I think there are, there are two ways of, of responding to that. The first is simply to note that it's
1: often uh, authoritarian or totalitarian regimes that set about changing history and removing names or changing names. And I think that anyone growing up in a liberal democracy would be rather nervous or chary about going down that kind of route where somebody is no longer considered to be ideologically sound or acceptable and suddenly they disappear from history. There are some very painful echoes of that in 20th century history. And I think we would be very careful about going down that uh, route. Um, I think the other point that I'd make is that in some ways this is often a local choice and I do understand that for the people of Bristol they feel this is something that is important for them to decide locally and I think that uh, if there is a kind of local campaign uh, and local consultation and uh, a decision is taken whether to keep or, or, or to take down a particular monument or change a name that's something that the rest of us should respect if that is is an orderly and well-organised kind of process. But the third thing I'd say is that, of course, once you've taken the statue down or you've changed the name, then that, that person and the complex deeds that they may have been involved with are almost lost to history. Whilst Colston's name is available in Bristol, then, as it were, the moral questions that his whole legacy throws up are amenable for discussion. Children can be educated about it in schools. There can be a kind of constant debate about these very fundamental moral questions uh, that history throws up. Once you take the name away, then Colston is probably forgotten and the educational opportunity goes.
2: But do you feel that there has been enough of this kind of contextualization done about people like Rhodes and about Colston? I mean, before these campaigns were people being taught the real nature of these
1: people? Well, as it happens, it's always been a bugbear of, of mine that there is never enough contextualization. Whenever I've gone to museums or particularly country houses, uh, I see uh, paintings or statues, pieces of furniture, and I always want more information, often out of pure ignorance because I don't know myself uh, what I'm looking at and it would help greatly to understand. I've always favoured, for example, when going to uh, a country country house or or some such building, uh, a kind of uh, entrance hall full of information about who built the house, who the family were, who lived in the house, what its history is, and where it fits in. So uh, as a historian, I can never get enough contextualization. So I certainly think, following from that, that when you have these morally dubious figures from history who have come down to us, who might once have seemed heroic, but who now appear to us to be compromised in so many ways. It's even more important that we understand, as it were, why they were celebrated, say, in the 17th or 18th centuries, and why now we have reason to be more sceptical about their legacy. So
2: you can never get enough information, in my view. So, on the one hand, you've got people who, it seems abhorrent to celebrate them because their deeds were so bad, But is there also a related issue that for people who have, say, a personal connection to this story, so people of African descent, not only is there that problem, but there's also the problem that they might feel unwelcome in an institution or in a city where people such as this have statues, their names are on streets. And how do you think we could deal with that kind of sensitivity? I I
1: think that's almost the most serious question that we have to deal with because clearly uh, if, as it were, aspects of the historic fabric give offence and prevent people from fully engaging in all sorts of cultural, educational activities, even in employment, then you have a genuine problem of social cohesion. And the celebration of controversial figures, I use the word celebration, of controversial figures who might well be off-putting and cause offence is something we would have to be very careful about. What we're talking about here is not necessarily celebration, not celebration by us, Today, it may have been celebration 200 years ago of somebody who uh, may have been involved in slave-related activities, but had other reasons to be remembered. And there, I think, although one would never want to dogmatize, uh, one would never want to tell people what their reaction should be, one would hope that the process of contextualization, of a full explanation, of being absolutely rigorously honest about a person's biography or about the history they were involved in, so that nothing was hidden, as it were, one would hope that that would be sufficient uh, to allay anyone's concerns in regard to participating or educating themselves or being involved.
2: You clearly take quite a nuanced approach to this, but are there some figures from history for whom even things like contextualisation would be wrong? I mean, if say, in Germany, there were lots of statues to Hitler and other Nazi leaders. I know this is always the most extreme example cited, but in, in that case, do you think it could be legitimate to retain those? Well, I think... As you say, there are sort of grey areas here
1: that um, are really where we we have to cite the discussion. There are no easy solutions to these problems. I think one way of thinking about this is that every every case must be judged on its own on its own merits. We can talk in general terms about what might be done, uh, but I suspect that in each case you come up against some unique characteristics, and you have to think about each case on its own merits, though perhaps in the context of wider uh, general considerations. What has been done in in some countries, in some cities, is to take all the uh, unliked, unloved, offensive statuary uh, and place them in one sort of museum park. Uh, This has been done in Moscow, for example. And all those ancient monuments from the communist era, which are now in a sense dead history uh, and which some would find offensive, have been removed from the center of the city and placed uh, in this park. And you can walk around and see if you wish. I'm not sure that I'm suggesting that is the obvious and a kind of uh, always solution to these problems. Um, but I think there probably are in many cases. People who are so abhorrent that the presence of a monument to them uh, on the streets would be offensive, Hitler being a case in point, since it's almost generally understood among Germans themselves that this is a quite unacceptable
2: aspect of their history and they themselves would not wish uh, to be reminded of. But I wonder, I suppose, also from the other side, how we go about deciding which figures from history need to have either their statues taken down, their names changed, or, or even just contextualisation. Does it have to be someone who is beyond the pale by today's standards? Would they also have had to fall in foul of the standards of their own time? That's certainly one way of thinking about. This. If someone's
1: activities were highly controversial in their own lifetime, and if we continue to see them as such in our uh, era, then you might well say that they infringe not only our standards, but the standards of their own age. Um, and hence, that monument is not only controversial to us, but con- controversial in its own time. And that might well be a good reason for suggesting that this person was unworthy from the start of receiving such an accolade. The problem is, is I think, more difficult when we're talking about uh, an activity that someone engaged in that was uh, unexceptionable at the time, that people did not complain about at the time, that nobody thought was an infringement of a moral code, uh, which has become such a thing uh, uh, in our own time. Then I think we have a difficulty because, in a sense, we're starting to judge the past on our own terms and I think most historians and I think most interested people would see the problem with that uh, projecting back our own moral code onto the past uh,
2: because the past is different and we need to respect that difference. Is there also a case for some kind of balance sheet on people if someone committed some deeds which are clearly bad but also had some very positive achievements. I'm thinking about people like Nelson and Churchill and Cromwell, maybe, who undoubtedly did things that we wouldn't find acceptable today. But on the other hand, clearly had some achievements that people were still laud today. Should that count in their favour when considering things like statues? Well, are- <laughs> I, I think you'd you'd be
1: hard put to find anyone, probably anyone on the planet, who doesn't have a debit side to to, as it were, balance against the credit side. Almost by definition, any great political leader, any great statesperson, uh, any great cultural figure uh, will have done things that can easily be used on the debit side um, and all those figures that you mentioned are in their ways, in different perspectives, from the perspective of different people. Cromwell appears to the English rather different than he appears to the Irish, for example. So it's it's always going to be a balance. And I think that's what uh, we have to take into account. The danger, I think, in, in, as it were, taking offense against monuments, in pulling them down, is that we do then present uh, history as a kind of moral pageant. The only people, we're going to remember are those who are wholly good, wholly on the right side. And that runs not only against the nature of history, but also the nature of our own moral lives on a day-to-day basis, because we know that no-one is perfect, and that uh, if we're going to be accurate, not only to the past, but the present, we need to reflect
2: all sides of a personality. Then does this also come to the question of who, who gets to decide these decisions are going to have to be made, Do we need committees? How how should these things be done?
1: Yes, I think that's a very interesting question because often it does come down to authority. How do you decide uh, who goes into the dictionary of national biography? Uh, Well, there, for example, you have uh, panels of experts who try to come to uh, a view on the most important figures in their particular fields. Or indeed, you could envisage committees of people, uh, public committees, thinking about who it is who deserves some memorial, who indeed should fill the fourth plinth, for example, in in Trafalgar Square. In the collection of essays that we've just published, dethroning historical reputations, one of the chapters is written by uh, two people who work for the Blue Plaques Scheme in London. And the Blue Plaques Scheme uh, puts up a rather attractive plaque Uh, on buildings where famous figures lived uh, at some stage uh, in their lives in the city in in and around London. And there you have as well a broadly-based committee of historians and public figures, cultural figures and so forth, trying to represent all shades of opinion who come together to try to, to determine who is worthy of consideration. But I take your point, in the end we have to make a decision and someone is going to have to make that decision, and that too could be grounds for controversy.
2: One thing I thought was really interesting in your book, which I wasn't aware of, was the fact that there was a campaign by present donors to Oriel College in Oxford saying we may stop funding this college if you take down the statue of Rhodes because they're then worried how the future generations might potentially judge them. I if you could expand on that a little bit. Yes, uh, the
1: book is, is not just about roads must fall and the issues concerning monuments from the past that we now have to deal with. It, it's more broadly based in the sense that we're very interested in fundraising and the kind of ethical problems that arise in fundraising and benefactions in general. And one of the... Smaller aspects of the Oriel College roads issue simply concerned, if you like, the question of of trust that is necessary between fundraisers and those who give funds and between benefactors and institutions. And one of the, I think, very important arguments that affected Oriel College's response to this was the response of their alumni, who said, well, if you can do this to the great benefaction that Cecil Rhodes, an old boy of the college, gave to Oriel College, what's to stop you doing this to our benefactions in the future? If we give money for a particular purpose, um, and it's thought 20 or 50 years hence, that purpose is no longer worthy, then you've broken faith with us. And so they said, you know, we give in good faith and we expect the institution to respect our gift in good faith. If you behave in this way towards Cecil Rhodes, that's in our view, bad faith. And we would worry about what would happen to our gifts in the future. You can expand that, I think, to dealings with almost any institution and in any charity. Uh, we give on one basis, and we wouldn't necessarily be comfortable if that basis were undermined or changed.
2: So, does this mean that institutions and cities, countries need to be very aware when they are receiving money, putting up statues, naming things, of how the future, people in the future, might view the people they're naming things after? Do we need to, even now, kind of future-proof our monuments. That's interesting. And I think that would be very difficult. I mean, because
1: history is a very fickle beast. Most futurologists get it wrong. Most historians have somewhat sceptical views about futurologists. I'm not sure that we would be able to, to guess what the world might look like in 50 or 100 years. I think it's not so much about the future as the present. So that what this business, these interesting debates, these controversies perhaps point to, is thinking more seriously in the here and now about what we're doing. Then at least we could say to those who come after us, we thought carefully, we made a considered decision, this is reflective of the values and the views of our contemporaries, meddle with it at your peril. At least we would pass on to the future a clear view of what we thought at this stage. Um, The argument perhaps about uh, monuments from the past is that they were not democratically arrived at. Nobody uh, as it were consulted a wide range of people. They were often the, the enthusiasms of individuals or particular institutions. So I think what that points to is that You know, when an institution is putting up a uh, a statue, when, for example, if ever we come to fill the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square and we put up a statue of someone, we will need to consult broadly and try to get consensus on who that person should be. Then we can turn to the future and, and we can say, this is what we thought in 2018 or 2019, meddle with it at your peril. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: Now, we've been talking quite a lot about this situation in Britain, but clearly there's a parallel debate going on in the United States at the moment surrounding the Confederate statues in particular. And I wonder whether you consider that a similar case or because it's now so linked to contemporary politics and race relations, whether there's actually something different going on there?
1: Well, I think it's probably similar rather than different in the sense that Rhodes was and is a symbol of imperialism and of racial subjugation and of racism generally. And I suppose that maps onto the... The, the situation of confederate leaders, confederate generals and the whole question of slavery and emancipation in the United States. So I think they probably are similar and I uh, hesitate to speak for another nation and another historical context. But clearly it's been uh, an even more intense debate in the United States um, and many of the same points have been made. Um, in the case uh, of the American Civil War, uh, it it was precisely that, uh, a division between two sides who had leaders and heroes uh, and causes that many people devoted themselves to. So that pulling down any monuments there is, in a sense, to undermine the history of one side or the other, uh, and it
2: must therefore be very controversial. People have long been aware that the Confederate States of America was in support of slavery, that Cecil Rhodes did some fairly unpleasant things, and Colston, certainly people were aware that he was a slave owner. So why do you think all this has gathered so much force in recent times? Because it it can't be because these things have been newly discovered. Is it saying something about our own society? Well, I think it does. Um, Let me venture two
1: suggestions. One, actually, is the increasing prevalence of historical knowledge and historical interest in our societies which may seem odd, but I think we are a more historically aware uh, society, and I think this goes for the United States also, than we were 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, I I don't myself think it's necessarily um, uh, the result of the historical profession, uh, but it's the good work of history school teachers, history on television, history magazines. Um, We've spread historical understanding and knowledge, And in many ways, the controversy is a product of a very good thing, which is greater historical knowledge and awareness and a greater concern about the past and the way it is presented. So I think in a strange sort of way, although this is often a bitter controversy, it's actually a rather good aspect of our society. We are more historically literate than we were before. I think the second point that follows from that is that also we are more morally concerned than we we have been in the past. We want our politics to reflect our moral uh, compass, our moral views, and we believe also that the way a person lives a life is a very important aspect, as it were, of their achievements. So we're much more concerned, I think, in this day and age to judge people by the way they behave not just, as it were, by what they do if they have positions of authority and power. So yes, you do have very interesting reflections of contemporary concerns in the way that people now judge the past, but they're not necessarily products of uh, a kind of uh, debasement of historical culture. Far from it. In many ways, I think people are much more historically aware and conscious than they were.
2: Having said that, have there been examples in the past where these kind of campaigns... Were underway where people objected to the statues and the names that, the, that surrounded them.
1: Well, yes, I mean, one of the contributions uh, in the book, in fact, my own contribution, is entitled We've Been Here Before. And I wanted to make the point that actually, um, many of the controversies that we're having today uh, were not unfamiliar 100 years ago, and indeed in the 19th century among the Victorians. There have always been debates about charitable giving and about the ethics uh, of those who gave funds. Um, And there have always been debates as well about the worth of individuals who we commemorate. So there's a famous case in the um, 1890s of the statue, which you can see in the precincts of the Palace of Westminster, looking out onto Parliament Square. It's the statue of Oliver Cromwell. And that was the cause of intense parliamentary um, uh, dispute uh, in the 1890s. And it was eventually paid for by the Prime Minister of the day, Lord Rosebery, Parliament having first agreed to provide money for it, and then withdrew that funding. So it's certainly the case that we've had these kinds of arguments before.
2: Just one last question. Are there any organisations or bodies that you think have managed to navigate these situations really well in the way that they have presented figures or issues from the past that are now very controversial?
1: Yes, I think that's very interesting. And again, I'm not conversant enough with the full range of institutions to to know. I think it's, it's a bit of a minefield, and many institutions have been caught out by it. Either they haven't seen the controversy brewing, or they've handled it uh, less well. One example, uh, Yale University has renamed one of its colleges, but first it decided to keep the name, having held an, in- an inquiry and then it changed its mind and, and changed the name. And it managed, I think, to alienate both sides in the debate in the course of 12 months. No disrespect to the university, these are very difficult questions. What I think is happening is that all institutions are now looking into their pasts, again one of the essays in our uh, collection by Nicholas Draper, essentially made this point that it's now incumbent upon all institutions to look carefully at their past and try to reflect it accurately and fair-mindedly. And I think if that is done, then hopefully um, honor is served across the board. People who have reason for grievance will accept that In a fair-minded and honest way, the institution has openly dealt with this problem. Uh, But I think, in a sense, we're at an early stage. I don't know yet that many institutions have even begun this process. But I think it very likely that in the future, many more will uh, to try to present themselves fairly uh, and to reflect the complexity, all the many grey areas in their own
2: uh, pasts. That was Professor Lawrence Goldman. Dethroning Historical Reputations, Universities, Museums and the Commemoration of Benefactors is out now, published by the Institute of Historical Research. Now before we go, I'd like to mention that our October issue has just gone on sale. In this month's magazine, you'll find articles on the Berlin family, the Munich crisis, Roman women, the credit crunch and a whole lot more. Look out for it in all good retailers and our many digital formats. And that is all for today, but please do join us on Monday when Ian Hislop will be exploring dissent through history.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook?